Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week on the show, we'll be finding out about a glitch in a pulsar signal. Plus, we'll be taking a look at the rising trend of remote sensing in ecology and conservation. This is the Nature Podcast for the 12th of April 2018. I'm Ellie Mackay. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Wow, well, welcome, Ellie. It's your first time in the presenting chair. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you here as well. Um, Listeners, we've got a lot of science to get through in today's show. First up, pulsars. Now, pulsars are incredible objects. They're formed from the remnants of stars that were large enough to die in a supernova, but too small to collapse into a black hole. The result is a neutron star, an object so dense that a sugar cube-sized chunk would weigh about as much as Mount Everest. But neutron stars also spin, sometimes hundreds of times a second. Combined with the neutron star's magnetic field, the result is a powerful stellar lighthouse. The repetitive radio waves from these pulsars can be picked up on Earth, providing a window into their behaviour. Astronomer Jim Polferman has spent the last few years studying one particular pulsar. In fact, he's written his thesis on it. I've submitted my PhD and literally tonight I got my reviews back from my reviewers um, and basically they've said, you know, make some changes, but I've got my PhD. So I'm not strictly a doctor, um, but I will be, I will be soon. <laughs> and the highlight of soon-to-be Dr. Paul Freeman's PhD is his observation of a very unusual behaviour. Reporter Adam Levy gave him a call to find out more. Now, sort of like a spinning top, pulsars gradually slow down as they lose energy, but they're not always just slowing down, right? No. A small percentage of pulsars have this phenomenon called glitching. The pulsar is spinning down like a top, but they suddenly speed up. How hard is it actually to catch a pulsar mid-glitch? Technically, it's not hard. If you said to me uh, it's going to happen at 1pm tomorrow afternoon, It's a very simple process. We'd have every telescope on the planet pointing at it, and for those that could see it, and we'd we'd observe, done. 
that the, the hard part is that you don't know when it's going to happen and so you just really have to observe, collect and analyse and process a lot of data hoping to catch the glitch. Could you tell me about the pulsar that you actually chose out to observe? Okay, so the Vela pulsar is the second closest pulsar uh, to Earth that we know of and it's the brightest pulsar in the sky. It's also extremely well placed for a southern sky here in Tasmania where I uh, live and work and and so it's it's an obvious choice from that perspective and it's as a young pulsar uh, it has the extra feature is that it, it glitches approximately every three years. What did it actually take for you to catch this pulsar glitching? I observed 19 hours a day out of the 24, so that pretty much gave me a 75% chance of catching the glitch, uh, assuming wind and, and anything else or mechanical failures wouldn't stop uh, the observing happening. It really just took time. Still a one in four chance of missing it. It seems uncomfortably high. <laughs> uh, yes, it was uncomfortably high, but uh, it happened at about 9.30pm uh, on the 12th of December 2016, and I remember going just about to go to bed and I thought no I'll I'll just check and it had happened and I realized I'd caught it and when it happened it was it was so exciting it was just uh, the the best the best present I could have had (laughs) I'm so uh, great to see it but what did you actually observe happening to the pulsars pulses you know in the back of my mind I sort of thought oh maybe when the glitch happens the, uh, the pulses might get brighter or something like that. But the completely the opposite happened as it turned out. Um, when the glitch happened, um, the first thing I saw was a null, as in there was no pulse whatsoever. It's sort of like the whole pulsar skipped a beat. Uh, and then a further analysis showed that not only did the pulse null, but the one before was really weird and broad and strange. So what is actually going on on the inside of this pulsar? Uh, We think of it as a hard crust on the outside and a superfluid core on the inside. As the pulsar is slowing down, you can think of the outside crust slowing down, but the inside superfluid core doesn't. They're separate. They rotate at different speeds. And eventually, the, the, the difference in rotation gets too great. And basically, you can, I like to sort of, as I describe it, is it's like the core grips the crust and speeds it up like a clutch in a car. But what we've shown is that process, when it happens, affects the magnetic field and hence affects the magnetosphere of the pulsar, which is the magnetosphere is the almost like the atmosphere of the pulsar that sort of sits around the outside of the hard crust. And that's where all the emission of the electromagnetic radiation comes from. Uh, the, the theorists are going to have to get their teeth into this and uh, try and work out what's going on. It's actually very, very interesting, I think. So is that it now? Do we now have all the observations we need of, uh, of pulsar glitches or would it be useful to have more data on this? Oh, of course it would be useful to, uh, to catch and no other glitch has been caught live large, with a large enough radio telescope to see the individual pulses and of course it would be really good to verify the results that I've got. So it would be really good to get uh, other telescopes or telescope arrays to try and catch the next glitch. That was Jim Palfreyman, who's based at the University of Tasmania in Australia. Check out his Pulsar paper at nature.com nature. Later in the show, we'll be hearing about the gender pay gap in UK science. That's coming up in the news chat. Next, though, we're joined by Sharmini Bundell for this week's research highlights. Sea turtles are well known for their serene swimming using their specially adapted flippers to glide through the world's oceans and seas. 
Now, a team of researchers from the US has shown that some sea turtles are using their flippers for more than just swimming. By reviewing data, images and videos, the team found evidence that sea turtles from multiple species are using their flippers to find, handle and eat their food. This included grasping jellyfish while tearing off the edible parts and pushing against a reef to pry off a sea anemone. These behaviours could help us understand how limbs evolved to do more than just move us around. Read this totally awesome story over at Pier J. Researchers in South Korea have been studying the mathematics of the humble kitchen sponge, using electron microscopy to examine exactly how cellulose sponges soak up water. While it might look like the water is just being held in the visible pores of a sponge, in fact, liquid also fills microscopic holes in the walls. These tiny holes temporarily expand and coalesce, allowing the sponge to soak up water. Based on these observations, the team have come up with a formula that predicts how quickly water will be absorbed by a sponge as it becomes swollen. They hope this work will shed light on the physics of other porous absorbent materials. Soak up that research over at Science Advances. Earlier this week, we sent reporter Noah Baker off to the London Parks Network to find out more about remote sensing and its implications for biological research. For many years, doing ecological research or conservation work involved decades of field work. Many, many years of sitting in tents, gathering long-term data about the changes in populations or individuals in an area. Now, that kind of work is incredibly important and still goes on today, but there is another way of trying to monitor large change, which has been gaining in popularity in recent years, and that's remote sensing. We're talking about things like satellite data or images gathered from planes. What this does is allow scientists to study large changes of populations or sometimes even individuals without impacting or in fact getting close at all to the things that you're studying. Now I'm walking through rainy Regent's Park in the heart of London, the UK's capital, on my way to the Zoological Society of London's headquarters at London Zoo. I'm meeting Natalie Petarelli, who not only works here, but she's the editor-in-chief of a relatively new journal specifically looking into remote sensing. Hello. Hi, I'm here to meet Natalie Petarelli. She's not in this building, she's in the so I'm Natalie Petrelli and I work at the Institute of Zoology, which is the research branch of the Zoological Society of London. You are the editor-in-chief of a relatively new journal. Tell me about that. So basically the journal is trying to highlight those developments that use remote sensing technology. And by that, I mean satellite data or camera traps or bioacoustics, which is uh, using sensors that capture sounds to derive information about the natural world and how that can inform ecology and conservation. I'm quite interested in what kind of remote sensing you use in your work. You know, what kind of thing do you focus on? So I use a lot of satellite data. So some satellites, they work a bit like a camera on board a spaceship <laughs> in a way that they take information the way your, your camera would take information. But there are also some sensors that use active technology, so, so a sensor that would send a beam of energy and basically use the information that comes back to derive uh, information about the environmental features. I have played a bit with camera traps, but mostly my work is about use of satellite data. People may think that satellites are fairly exclusive things, they're owned by countries and so on, but actually there's a lot of satellite data that's gathered which is open access, people can access it freely. 
if your idea of satellite data is something like Google Maps or Google Earth, then that's not free. But if you think something like uh, Landsat or the new Copernicus uh, um, program from the European Space Agency, then all of that's free. Um, so And that covers the whole world and anyone can um, basically download the information and have a go at analyzing them. Now that's a really key point there I think. Anyone can download the information but this is a lot of data you're talking about. How do you go about analyzing that amount of data? to learn anything meaningful? Not only is the amount of data, but actually it does take a bit of uh, <laughs> expertise and skills to derive the information. What has changed over the years in parallel to the opening of all those free data is also that the software, the capability to analyze those data has changed massively. Um, and a lot of uh, software are now open source, which means you can download them for free. And the capacity and the capabilities of those software have increased massively too. How granular can research get when it comes to remote sensing data? You know, what's your units, I suppose, you can get down to? Um, up until five years ago, you were talking so freely available data around 50 to 100 meter. Um, but then it started to go down and down. And now we're looking at 10 to 15 meters. There's even more interesting stories. So um, um, there's been a team in the US, I believe, that used some hyperspectral information. So hyperspectral, you have to imagine it's uh, it's a method that look at the reflectance, so that the energy that comes back uh, from the Earth in very small band on a, on a, on the electromagnetic spectrum. It, it literally capture uh, the signature of species, but sometimes of genotypes. So there's a guy that looked at different tree, uh, a team that looked at different tree and showed that different genotype of the, those aspen tree could actually be detected using this uh, um, satellite information. And as well as remote sensing from satellites, there's also remote sensing from planes, for example. Absolutely, yeah. The same with drones, actually. It's not just planes. So drones have become quite uh, appealing to a lot of uh, conservation uh, biologists and ecologists. A famous example is uh, someone using drones to uh, pick up orangutan nest uh, in tropical forest. Tell me a little bit about who else remote sensing data can be useful for. Climate people to start with. A lot of it is by insurers and anyone that is interested in um, deploying um, resources uh, uh, when faced with a catastrophe, so drought and the agriculture. They can detect things before it. You can actually visually see it on the ground. So you can. Um, there's an early warning system for drought. Uh, in terms of health, you can use satellite information to uh, predict diseases. Um, yeah, no, that's quite a lot. <laughs> it certainly sounds like a lot to get your, your teeth into. Yeah, no, it is, and uh, and that's why I think that we are far from understanding what we can do. Now, this is really exciting data, and it seems like it's gathering and growing in scope all the time. My question, I suppose, is what's the point in going out into the field anymore? Why don't we start doing all of our research using this remote sensing data? No, I never asked that. <laughs> um, well, there's, t there's two points to this. One, you cannot match the reliability, accuracy that you get from uh, ground data. Um, those data, they help 
people like me that use satellite data make the most of those satellite data because you need ground validation. You need information to calibrate this satellite information to make it more useful. The second thing is that there's a lot of stuff you can't see using satellite data. Imagine you work in the Congo. Um, your satellite will pick up your canopy, but nothing beyond it. <laughs> so all those animals, all those plants that live under the canopy, you would not see. So there is a, a huge opportunity for working together here, not to compete. That was Natalie Petarelli from the Institute of Zoology in London. To find out more about her journal, Google its full title, Remote Sensing in Ecology and Conservation. You can also find out more about remote sensing techniques in an article published last week in Nature's Toolbox section. Search for that over at nature.com forward slash nature. Right then, listeners, now it's time for the news chat. And I'm joined here in the studio by Ewan Calloway, our acting European bureau chief here at Nature. Hi, Ewan. Hello. Our first story then today, Ewan, comes off the back of something that happened last week in the UK. And that was that all companies over 250 employees uh, had to report on their gender pay gap. And this was something that was brought in by government legislation. Here at Nature, we've been looking at the pay gap in UK science. Ewan, can you explain to our listeners what the pay gap is and, and what it's looking like? Yeah, As we explain in our story, uh, the pay gap refers to the difference in the average hourly wage of all men and women across a workforce. And it's a very different thing from unequal pay, where men and women are paid differently for performing the same role, which has been illegal in the UK since the 1970s. So looking at this, uh, this pay gap, and we looked at one figure, which was median difference in hourly income between men and women, it's not good. Um, it's not good at all. Um, my colleague, Holly Else, Uh, selected 172 organizations that tend to employ scientists. Um, and we found for these employers, their median gender pay gaps were about 15% uh, compared to 10% for companies across the UK. So from our analysis, it seems that companies that employ scientists are doing a little bit worse than, than companies overall. Well, 15% then clearly is, isn't ideal at all, not to put too fine a point in it. Um, but how do things stack up in the different sectors? Yeah, uh, we found quite a, a lot of variation. For universities, uh, we found a 16% gap. Research institutes, 9%. Funders, 10%. Industrial employers, 12%. And uh, scientific publishers are over, over 20%. And it's important to point out also that there is a lot of variation between individual employers within, within these sectors. So some pharmaceutical companies, such as GSK and Merck, uh, had very small or even negative gender pay gaps. So women are, are getting more, whereas others had more standard uh, pay gaps you know, in, in, in the low teens. And do we know any of the reasons sort of behind this? I think overwhelmingly the explanation is that at most companies, there is a lack of women at uh, senior roles, which would have the effect of depressing or in, in leading to a, a higher wage gap. In universities, for instance, and this comes from another report from University College Union, found that 45% of the entire academic workforce is female, but less than one quarter of all professors are women. Well, how are researchers in these institutes uh, responding to this analysis? Um, I mean, you know, some were, some were surprised to find that, that their universities ranked uh, among the worst, especially among research-intensive universities, because they thought their department was doing a good job. Uh, others, one, one researcher from the University of Durham, which had quite a high gender pay gap, and I think the highest among uh, the prestigious Russell Group of, of research-intensive universities, she was both surprised and, and unsurprised by the data. So, you know, I mean, these statistics, they tell a larger story, but individuals' experiences will be different and, you know, there'll be variation there, of course. 
But what can be done to fix it then? How, I mean, how do we achieve the parity that, that we need? Pay women more? I mean, no, not to uh, belittle it. Um, I think the people we talked to said that companies need to really address what's behind uh, their pay gaps and what's, what's preventing them from hiring more women at senior levels, promoting women, et cetera. And I think, you know, as one source told us, it, it might require wholesale cultural changes at, at companies. They really have to take a, a good hard look at themselves, their organizations, and figure out how they can do better. Well, the stats are going to come out at the same time next year again then, Ewan, so I guess we'll have to have another look and see if science is upping its game. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be looking hard for improvements. Well, for our next story then, Ewan, we're going to talk about a uh, cancer therapy and uh, some of the problems getting it so, sort of to prime time. Yeah, this is a story from my colleague Heidi Ledford, um, who works with me in, in London. And her story is about a cancer drug that was first approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 2014 to treat melanoma. And the drug in particular is an immunotherapy, and so it kind of ramps up the immune system to specifically attack cancer cells. And I think there's been a real realization that such therapies are are effective against a, a broad range of cancers. And so based on subsequent testing, this drug was approved last year to treat not only melanoma, but to treat other cancers that had the same underlying uh, molecular defects. Well, I mean, so far, this seems like good news. I mean, what's the problem? Right. So the, the problem is, is that the, the drug does seem to be effective when you give it to people who have the underlying uh, molecular defect. People aren't always getting this drug because the test used to identify these defects, which are related to problems in DNA repair that lead, lead, to, uh, lead to misshapen proteins. These tests aren't always applied to patients, and there are three different tests, and they're not always, they're not always giving the same answer. So doctors aren't, don't always have a clear idea of who will benefit uh, from these drugs. Yeah, I mean, I guess a, a, a false negative is, is, a, is a dreadful thing when you're trying to work out whether to give someone a, a therapy or not. Exactly. Well, well, what are researchers doing then to try and sort of overcome this issue? Well, next week at the major re- meeting for, for cancer research, uh, researchers and regulatory officials are going to be talking about it um, and just trying, trying to see if they can come up with solutions and just a, just a way forward to, to get patients on drugs that could, could save their lives and ex- or extend their lives. And I think this, this really highlights a, a larger issue because, you know, this is, this is what molecular medicine is all about, is that, you know, for so long we've treated cancer based on, on where it occurs. And, you know, that, that's quite a powerful way of, of developing drugs and, and treating drugs. But I think everyone thinks, knows that we can do better. And so we're going to have, a, you know, a range of drugs uh, targeted against, uh, you know, certain molecular markers um, beyond this one. And so I think, you know, we really need to get get straight how we, how we decide uh, to get people on the best drugs. Thanks, Ewan. For more on these stories and the latest science news, head on over to nature.com slash news. That's it for this week's show. But before we go, we'd just like to remind you that we've been nominated for a Webby People's Voice Award and we need your help. Yes, that's right. Listeners, there's only a week left to go in the voting. We're in the podcast and digital audio science and education category and you can cast your vote over at vote.webbyawards.com. Huge thanks to those of you who've already voted and to those of you who've let us know via our Twitter account at Nature Podcast. Don't forget, you can also reach out to us via email, podcast at nature.com. This week, we received a lovely message from Simon Goodman saying, everything about the podcast is wonderful, even Charmony's puns. 
Thanks, Simon. We'll let Sharmini know. I'm Ellie Mackay. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.